Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. We're going to be back in our series in 1 Corinthians this morning. We've taken a little break. It's been about, mm, I think, 10 weeks, something like that, uh, since we were last in the book of 1 Corinthians. So uh, it's been a little while. Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we will start from verse 1 there today. Um, We have a little less than six chapters left in the book of 1 Corinthians, which means we might actually make it through the end of this book before the end of the year. How interesting. Um, I I have a personal goal of making this happen. However, we know that uh, a man plans his steps, but the Lord orders his way, right? So uh, if the Lord decides that uh, we need to take a little bit longer, we're good with it. Amen? It's the Word of God, right? Take our time. Go through each, each each passage, each word, and try to understand what there is there for us. And if you're new here, this is sort of the warp and woof of Mosaic Church. We believe in expository teaching, verse by verse, through, through uh, books of the Bible. That's how we roll. Uh, this prevents us from just sort of cherry-picking the stuff we like to hear. Uh, it also ensures that we get a, a good smattering of uh, what the Word of God says. Obviously, like it's going to take a lot for us to make it through the entire Bible together over the course of a lifetime. Who knows? Maybe we'll actually do it. It'd be kind of cool. Uh, but uh, you know, we try to, to make sure that we are going through verse by verse through these books so that we can understand not what my opinions are about the text, but what the text says. Uh, and I, I, Pastor Brandon and I both do our best to look at the task, text and ask that question. What is God saying as he inspired the original writers? How is he communicating? It's not just me going through and cherry-picking a verse that seems good and, and riffing on it. No, it's we, we attempt to faithfully exposit God's word here at Mosaic. And so it's, again, I, I say it's my pleasure and my honor to address you with the word of the Lord this morning. I mean that. I mean that I, I want to approach this with sort of fear and trembling uh, because this is the holy, inerrant, inspired word of God. And so this morning, again, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Uh, If you would like, or if you're able, please stand with us as we read those verses aloud. Again, if you're new here, we stand uh, for the reading of God's word because it is inspired and inerrant, and it differentiates this from sort of the the sermon. And so while I do my best to be expository, to explain what the text says, we take the time to confer upon what God has said directly and clearly the right amount of respect, which means we stand. And so... Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, it says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all ate the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. 
Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this time that we have together to explore this passage together. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here with us, present in this place, illuminating your word to us. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon us the meaning of the text, but Lord, not only that, that you would transform our hearts, transform our minds as we hear it, as we learn about it. Lord, I pray that you would sanctify us and make us holy. Lord, not as a means of salvation, but as a means of glorification of you. Lord, I pray that you would make us a thankful people, a people who is not for sin and evil or for grumbling against you, but Lord, a people who is for you and you alone. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to fight sin, that you would help us, Lord, to, to fight that fight founded firmly upon the finished work of Christ. For Lord, that is our only hope in victory over sin. Thank you, Lord, for all of these things. We pray your blessing upon this service again. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Y'all can have a seat. There's an interesting uh, phrase here in verse 4. It says, the rock was Christ. I'm kind of going out of order here, but uh, I thought it was interesting that, that Paul decided to make a connecting point here between uh, the Old Testament saints and the New Testament church. Now, it might be a surprise to you, maybe not, that there is some unity with the church in the Old Testament and the church of the New Testament. Now, you might be going, well, I thought it was Israel and the church. No, I, th I think that these are two very related, if not the same things. See, the signs have changed, yes, because the people of the Old Testament believed in the promise of Christ who was to come, and we now believe in the risen Christ. But we are, with the saints of the Old Testament, one body, all saved by grace through faith in Christ, so far as he was known at those point, points in time. So Adam and Eve were saved because they believed God and the promise of the Son who would come to crush the head of the snake. The people believed and the promise that, that the same son and a prophet greater than Moses would come when Moses was around. When David was around, they believed that there was, there was a promise of a son who would have an eternal throne. And there's further revelation of this in the prophets. There was a promise that was there, and then people of the Old Testament, the people of the Old Testament would believe that. They believed God. What does it say about Abraham? He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Faith. The same thing that, the same mechanism by which we are saved. It was the same one that saved the Old Testament church. 
I admit that there are some differences between Israel and the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament, but so far as we all trust in God, we are one body. That's Ephesians chapter 2. And as much as things are different, the similarities are so much that Old Testament Israel can serve as a, at least a direct parallel for the visible church in the New Covenant age. And Paul uses this, this terminology, the rock was Christ, to connect the two. He's like, this isn't just an allegory. We believe in the same Jesus. They might not have known him by name, but they knew of the promise. Now, I use this term, the, the visible church, just a second ago. Maybe this is unfamiliar. So just a little bit of theological background, a little bit of preliminary work here. The visible church is the people that you see sitting here, right? It's everybody who's sitting in the seat who seems to be a part of the, the local church. Particularly, it's people who are, are coming to the table on a regular basis. They've been baptized, and they are members of a gospel-believing church. This is the visible church. And this isn't just all of the visible church. I'm talking about everyone everywhere who gathers like this. The invisible church is all those who are truly and eternally saved from all times and places. Visible church is the people you can see, those who profess belief, and the, and the, the invisible church is the one that only God knows perfectly. See, we can only see the visible church, and it's a, it's a mixture. The reality is that most people who are, are, are most of the churches on this, on this planet who have people who, who are members of those churches, some of them are not saved. It's just the reality. Now, you can only know this in your own heart, and we'll get there in a moment. But Israel, if we're trying to find the parallel here, Israel is the visible church in the Old Testament. This is the parallel here. There's a mixture of people there, right? There's some people who will wander off into error. They will uh, commit themselves to sin and idolatry and all that kind of thing. And then there are some who will remain faithful. They're the faithful remnant. But this whole thing was called Israel. And they all received wonderful benefits just for being part of Israel. So in the Old Testament, they received uh, guidance through the, uh, through the desert. They received sustenance. They received food and water. They received good government. They received all these wonderful blessings that God saw fit to bestow upon Old Testament Israel as a whole. Likewise, Christ gives some benefit to all those who participate in the local church, whether they are part of the invisible church or not. If you decide that you want to snow everyone and you don't really believe but you want to be a part of a church because it seems like a good place to have nice friendships and community and things like that if you want to do that sort of thing you can do that and you will experience some benefits won't you you'll experience that friendship you'll go to community groups you'll make friends you'll have uh things in common with those people you'll go out and you'll have fun oh man you get all sorts of wonderful things this is the visible church we receive benefits from christ even if it's not salvation, all of us receive these benefits from Christ. So with that in mind, that the Old Testament church, or the or Old Testament Israel, is the Old Testament church, and likewise the New Testament church, both are a mixture of, of different kinds of people, both uh, saved and unsaved, faithful and unfaithful. Now we can start to see what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So let's dive in now. He says in verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. 
And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that had followed them, and the rock was Christ. He says, all of Israel was led by the cloud. They were in the cloud, and they were led through the sea. If you remember this, uh, it's from Exodus chapters 13 and 14. You can write that down. You can go read the, the stories later. But all of Israel was led by this cloud, this pillar of cloud, up to the Red Sea and past it. God would go before them. He led them out of Egypt. So they all experienced this. No matter who they were, they all experienced it. And the same thing is true of the Red Sea. All of Israel, faithful and unfaithful, were led through the Red Sea. Some people like to say that Moses parted the Red Sea I think we should give all credit to God there. Maybe through Moses, he parted the Red Sea and his people walked through on dry land. You remember this story, right? It's the, it's the uh, Ten Commandments movie, right? Everybody's seen the Charlton Heston film. Uh, if you haven't, it's a classic, uh, I guess. Um, but this is, the, like, this is the basic story. And so Paul says that they have been baptized into Moses because they have this experience. Now you might be going like, well, what's, what's up with that? Like, what's baptism into Moses versus baptism into Christ? We can kind of start to pick out the, the meaning that Paul is using here. You see, ritual washing was a, a big part of the Mosaic Covenant. When the, the people became unclean for whatever reason, they were supposed to wash, and then they would be welcomed back into fellowship with the rest of the people. Obviously, this serves a practical purpose, right? God is a very practical God. I like that about him. <laughs> Not that that matters at all. He's God, he can do what he wants, but he decided to condescend to us to be practical in these rituals that he gave his people. And so when they did something that was dirty, he had them wash before they were allowed back into fellowship. It's a good thing, it serves a nice practical purpose. If you touched something that was dead, you needed to wash your clothes and wash your hands and things like that. People didn't know about germs. They didn't understand what was going on there. But God did, and he was like, I'm going to save my people from physical destruction by causing them to wash themselves before they come back into fellowship. They don't spread disease. How interesting. I love that stuff. Very practical stuff. However, this also served as an out, outward sign that a person was allowed back into fellowship. This was simply just sort of a ritual thing, right? So you have the, the cleanliness aspect, but you also have the, the ritual of this person was cast out for a time and now they are being brought back into fellowship. It was an initiation rite. And it became even more of an initiation rite into Judaism in the first century. This is why you see John giving baptism. He's washing people as, a, as sort of a, 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 a symbol of them coming back into fellowship with God. It's a symbol of faith and repentance. And so these people were baptized into Moses, quote-unquote, in that they all underwent something that unified them together as one people. It brought them into fellowship with one another. In this way, they were baptized into Moses. An illustration of this, you, you, maybe you're not fully getting it yet, like, it's okay. Uh, is it, this is a bad example, but you remember when hazing was a, was a thing? Right? Like, I know hazing has a pretty terrible rap, don't get me wrong, but it served the same purpose here, and just, so just bear with me, like, lay that aside, lay all the emotional damage you may have suffered from that sort of thing, I'm sorry. Uh, it's pretty terrible, don't get me wrong. But 
the shared trauma binds people together like little elf. In fact, uh, I, I had an initiation uh, sort of hazing experience in college. That was interesting. Um, I, I, I went to a Christian school, all right? So let's start there. Uh, I, that was, yeah, yeah. So start, start there, yeah. I went to a Christian school, I, I, and I joined, uh, or I wanted to join uh, a, a choir to play guitar for them. And I was like, hey, I'm going to join campus choir at Lee University. Uh, look them up. They, they, they're, they're still pretty good. They used to be great. My goodness. Incredible musicians. Um, some of the best musicians I've ever played with. Great stuff. And man, like, love to worship, right? Like, it was all just like call it on the spot and just like go for three hours. It was terrific. We loved it. Um, anyway, I was like, I want to be a part of this. And so I, I went to my audition. I thought I did terribly. And they were like, well, we'll let you in anyway. <laughs> I was like, okay, all right. <laughs> I guess they promised that they would just like turn me down in the mains or something like that. I don't know. I was awful in my audition, but I guess they saw something in me. They were like, you're in. But there's an initiation right. There's a little bit of some stuff that you've got to do. And, and this was actually pretty widespread known. In fact, it was so known that uh, Ash also wanted to join Campus Choir uh, while we were there. And she was too afraid of the initiation ritual. Uh, so, so she ended up not trying out. Um, <laughs> which, which is terrible because uh, uh, there's a lot of fear behind this, right? But it was, like again, shared trauma binds people together. Uh, so anyway, what they did was they would blindfold you, put you in a van with a bunch of other people, drive you out into the middle of nowhere, weed you around as a chain of people to who knows where through some cornfield that like you could get lost in and potentially, oh, it's a little dangerous maybe, and you didn't know where you were. It was in the dead of night, also, yeah, it was crazy stuff. And then, and then they would, uh, th this is the, the greatest part, all of this fear sort of builds up, right? You're worried, you're not sure what's going on, and then all of a sudden they're like, take off the blindfold. So you take off the blindfolds, and we're actually just having a prayer meeting. <laughs> what a, like, what a letdown, right? <laughs> like, you think something terrible is going to happen. So that was my hazing experience. Um, anyway, uh, that was my initiation right into campus choir. Yeah, funny stuff, right? But this, this shared experience bound these people together in the Old Testament, just like it bound Campus Choir together, which it did, by the way. Praying together is a great way to be bound together with other people, right? Also shared fear and things like that. But anyway, I'm not traumatized. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so, so Paul is using this, uh, this parallel of, of a shared experience uh, to baptism in Christ. You see, baptism is the initial outward sign of union with Christ. Without having been baptized, you cannot be seen as a member of the covenant community. Some of you have wondered why we, we say when we uh, invite people to the Lord's Supper, we often say, you, we ask you to be a baptized uh, believer in Christ. Why do we ask for baptism? Because unless you are baptized, I don't know that you are following Jesus. You could tell me that all day, but unless you're willing to follow him in that very basic way of simply being baptized, taking a dip in some water, then I can't know that you're truly committed to Jesus. That's the first level, obviously, but it's a good check. It's the ex external sign. I've, I've used this before. I'm going off my notes, and that's going to be a problem because we're going to keep you here for like three hours, but here we go. Uh, I wear a ring on my finger. That is a sign of the covenant that I have with my wife. Baptism is like that. Baptism is a sign of the covenant. 
that has been made with you in Christ. In fact, let me, let me go so far as to say this. I can't, if we can't see you as part of the covenant community because you haven't been baptized, then I'll say this. It, it, you may be united with Christ in faith, but baptism is the first fruit of obedience in the Christian life. It's the first thing you do, so much so that the apostles often conflated salvation and baptism. This is why we get some theological confusion there. It's the first thing you do after you're saved. And refusing to be baptized, I want to put this out there, refusing to be baptized is a sure sign that there is something very wrong in your faith. Somebody got quiet. If you're like, well, I haven't been baptized, but I believe. Come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Brandon. Let's figure this thing out. Let's get you dunked, all right? Because if you're willing to follow Jesus in that ordinance, then praise God. Let's go do that so that we can see you as a covenant member of this visible church. So these people having been, in the Old Testament, having been led by the pillar of cloud and having walked through the Red Sea on dry land, these experiences united Israel together under Moses, who was their high priest. And likewise, having been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, this unites us as part of the visible church. This is the parallel that Paul is making here. He also speaks of manna and water from the rock, uh, I'll, I'll brush past this a little bit. These are called spiritual food and drink in that they were provided by God for the good of his people. Right? And I think that Paul uses these terms to more closely link them to the Lord's Supper. Spiritual food and drink, right? I, I actually pray this most of the time as we uh, prepare for communion. I pray that God would bless this stuff and that as we partake of it in faith that it would become true spiritual food and drink for our souls. That's part of the, the sort of basic liturgy that I have for the Lord's Supper. These things are, Paul is saying, these are parallels. These people consumed that which God provided. And so like the people of Israel, we too eat and drink the food and the drink that God has provided. Paul begins to say all of this because he is going to make the point that outward signs do not save you. Outward signs do not save you. You may be baptized, you may come to the table every week, you might come to church, raise your hands, have tears streaming down your face as we sing and we pray, you may go to a community group every week, you might give in the offering, you might do all of these things, but if you think that's what makes you good with God, then remember verse 5 of this passage, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. God was not pleased with these people. We'll get into why in just a moment. But it says they were overthrown in the wilderness. The ESV, as much as I love it as a good, reliable translation of the Bible, does not get the full force of the word in this particular passage. It reads overthrown. Now the NASB gets a little bit closer. That's uh, that's a very solid, reliable version, uh, if you'd like to use that. Uh, it says, laid low. The Young's literal translation, which I enjoy for study, uh, gets closer to the implied meaning of the Greek when it says, strewn in the wilderness. For they were strewn in the wilderness. If you've ever watched a war movie where they show the aftermath of a battle, 
with bloodied bodies laying all on top of one another all over a field, that's the force of overthrown. Death, destruction. Don't let your observance of religious rituals and your receipt of the benefits of being a member of a church lead you to complacency, church. With most of them in the Old Testament, most of them, those people who had walked through the desert, followed the pillar of smoke, crossed the Red Sea on dry land, ate God-given manna, drank from the rock, and were sustained by God through the wilderness, with most, not just some, but most, God was not pleased. And when the day of judgment came, they died in the wilderness, unable to enter the promised land. You can already see where I'm going. Yes, this is a bit of a sinners in the hands of an angry God sermon. 1 Corinthians 10.6 says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Note here that desire is the differentiating, differentiating factor. Paul's warning the Corinthians and us through them that we should not desire evil. He'll get to doing in the, in the later parts of this passage, but he acknowledges that sin originates from the heart. In fact, he's saying the same thing here as in Hebrews 3.11. This is a, a good passage to remember. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He's saying, I know. Desire starts right here. Sin starts right here in the heart. Christian, God sees you, and he knows your heart. I say this, let me say this more clearly. Professing Christian, God sees you and he knows your heart. You can say and do all the right things on the outside. And you can hide all of your sin. It's not good enough. Look, God knowing you and seeing your heart is a comfort to the one whose hope is in Christ and whose desire is for God, isn't it? I think those of us here today that are saying, yes, I... I I am not perfect, but I follow Jesus. I try to follow Jesus. I scramble after him every single day. You would say, yes, so that is a comfort knowing that God knows me and forgives me of all of my iniquity. But God knowing you and seeing you is a terrifying reality for those who are secretly hiding unrepentant sin while trying to maintain a Christian facade. Do you desire sin, church, or do you desire God? The choice is exclusive. Did you know that? The choice is exclusive. I mean, it is either one or the other. In programming, we call this exclusive or. <laughs> XOR. It's a, good, uh, it's a good operator to know if you're ever going to get into programming. It means exclusively one or the other. You cannot have both. Usually, or means you could potentially have both. No, this is exclusive. Do you desire sin or do you desire God? Choosing one means denying the other. If you remember from pre previous chapters, the Corinthians had developed a particularly licentious lifestyle. They toyed with idolatry. They praised sexual immorality, even a, a man who had his father's wife. And they abused God's blessings. 
Now, Paul has already rebuked them, but he continues in this passage to show them the fruit of their sinful lifestyles. Look at verse 7 of our passage. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. If you can remember back before our Advent series, the immediate context of 1 Corinthians 10 is Paul's discourse against idolatry, food sacrificed to idols, and the cultural uh, practices associated with idolatry. In this verse, he references Exodus 32.6. You can write that down and look at it later. But the people there had convinced Aaron to make a golden calf for them to worship. You remember this whole story. Exodus 32 goes on to tell us that Moses commanded the Levites to execute 3,000 men because of this idolatry. And then God doubled down and he sent a plague upon the people at the end of the chapter. 3,000 wasn't enough to pay for the sin, to stop the sin. You ever thought that trespassing against God was no big deal? You're in for quite the rude awakening today. If you think somehow the wrath of God was tamed when Jesus died on the cross, remember 2 Peter 3, 8-10. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. People love to stop there. Keep going. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Still, people love those. Verse 10 is hard to to stomach, though. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. This is the promise of God's incoming wrath. It says that one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. It's talking about God's impending judgment of all of creation. Many people look at this passage and assume that it's some sort of hopeful positive thing and it can be look that's the truth about who god is yes and amen but remember the context the context is impending judgment now many of you are going to sit here before me this morning and be thinking well uh but idolatry isn't too much of a problem for me going back to the context of the passage maybe maybe not many of you here today are tempted to to worship little carved figures that you put in your house I haven't seen too many of those in your houses. Um, I, don't, I haven't seen too, much, too many posts on Instagram. Look at my new idol. Um, I mean, I don't know if you're into American Idol. Maybe. Anyway, uh, that's a whole di- different thing. Uh, rabbit trail. Um, but most of you are not saying, hey, I like, I like to worship these little things that I made with my hands. And so like, the question then becomes, like, what's, where is idolatry now? Has it died? Is idolatry gone? Do we no longer find ourselves tempted by these other things that would place themselves above God or even beside God? No, I don't think that idolatry is dead in the church. Because the religion of self-worship is alive and well in our society. 
look, I know there's plenty of other idols that you can have, but I think the idol of self is probably the most poignant one to point out as we think about idolatry. Christians are constantly tempted to do just as the Israelites did. We look around, we see the religion of our neighbors, secular humanism that is selfish. We've heard the, the, the talk about like people being called NPCs, non-player characters, or being uh, the, the player character in their narrative, right? So the, the idea is simply that only I am sort of the main character in my narrative. Everything's about me. The world revolves around me, and my perception of reality is all that matters. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? People insisting that they are one thing when they are not. This is, it's all the same philosophy. And so we look around as Christians and we look around at, at all the people who seem to be happier. They seem to be in a good place when they, when they go and participate in all these rituals associated with modern secular humanism. The, it's the religion of self-worship. We look around that and we go, man, that'd be kind of cool to have. I'd like that little piece of that over there. I don't want the whole thing. I just want this piece. This makes me feel good about myself. This is what I like. So we go out and we grab those little pieces. And look, I, I want to be clear that because it, Christians generally try to stay within the church, they have friend relationships and they don't want to really admit that they have gone too far afield, then typically what happens is that they just take little pieces and they just start tacking them on to Christianity, right? You grab all these other little idols that you can find in the world, you start tacking them on, and you go, well, this is what I believe. This is what I'm about. And so you have Christians, people who profess faith in Christ, making little g-gods out of money, power, comfort, sex, food, more. All sorts of things. And Satan Satan is really good at coming up with new stuff that fits right into the weak spots in our faith. And I say new stuff because it seems new, but it's really just the same old stuff in a different package. But that's a different thing altogether as well. But look, don't get me wrong. It, it, it is all the same as the old stuff, but he's crafty and he finds just the right places to tempt us as we sit comfortably in our church building here this morning. Men, are you feeling powerless? The cult of power has plenty of options for you. Yes, I'm turning into a little bit of our, uh, a sarcastic guy at the moment. The cult of power has plenty of options for you, men. You should pursue a leadership position. Climb the ladder. Money will make you powerful and comfortable. Ooh, yeah, that sounds good. The cult of power will give it all to you. It'll give you everything that you ever wanted. You feel undervalued, men? Power will give it to you. Make power your little G-God. Yeah, you can tack that right onto your Christianity. It's fine. Oh, no one will promote you at work? You, uh, no problem, no problem. Not a problem at all. Just become a leader in the church. Then you'll have real worth. People will respect you then. They'll, they'll see you as closer to God. That'll solve all your problems. The cult of power would love to have you. Oh, that maybe that's not the right fit. Well, I guess you could always rule your household with a graceless iron fist. You want to do that? that? That sounds like a great thing. 
oh, that fits really nicely with this like complementarian mindset, right? So men are supposed to have all of the authority, right? That's it. Is it the end of the story? No, it's not the end of the story. But this is what the cult of power tells us. All that power will give you real meaning. But hey, I mean, if the cult of power isn't your thing, the church of passivity is happy to give it to you. Their God is comfort. They'll teach you to drink beer, play video games, never teach your family about Jesus. And you'll force your wife to lead your household as you insist on being treated like a man while you act like a child. The cult of power would love to have you. Yet Jesus tells us that he who is last will be first. And that men, we should give ourselves up for our wives. Real money, or real, sorry, not real money, real worth only comes from our identity in Christ, men. Power matters little. The one who was most powerful humbled himself and became a servant of all. But the church, the cult of power would love to have you. They'd love to twist your desire, your good desire to lead your family into a dictatorship. The idol of self coming for everyone. Women, you're feeling uncomfortable with your role in the family? The cult of 21st century feminism would love to have you. God didn't really say that you should be working at home, loving your children, and submitting to your husbands, did he? No, of course not. No, he couldn't have said that. That must have been some other book. Those things are too much. The cult of 21st century feminism is happy to tell you that uh, submission is a bad word, that motherhood makes you a martyr because you, your whole life is over when you have kids, and a glass of red wine and a smutty book is the solution to all of your problems. I'm on Instagram too, y'all. Oh, if you're not into the smutty stuff, that's okay. Here in the Church of Feminism, there are bunches of quote-unquote Christian influencers who will tell you just what you always wanted to hear. But wait. God did actually say you should do those things. Motherhood is normal. And red wine causes more problems than it's solved when used as a self-medication. Am I pricking a few hearts this morning? Do all these cults sound familiar? I mean, I could go on and on. I know I'm being a little sarcastic this morning. But it's so, it's so disappointing to me, and, and, and even internally, to be tempted by these cults of power and money and sex and everything else. Take your pick. Comfort is a, is a God that you can place in your life. It pains me, and it pains me to see people in the church saying, you know what, I could just take a little bit of this secular religion over here and add it on to my Christianity, setting up little idols before your holy God. He says, you will have no other gods before me. First commandment. You know that before doesn't mean just before in order, but it means in front of? You cannot have any other gods, period. That's the first commandment. 
you know, all of these cults that I've mentioned, all these made-up cults, they're, they're not real. You can't go to cultofpower.com. Well, you probably could, but anyway, don't. In all of these, you're the, you're the highest being in existence. You're the idol. Really. And all that matters to you is what you want. Idolatry is alive and well in the Christian church in the U.S. because it has become normal. We let it live in our hearts and in our homes because all of these things promise to fill the holes that our biblically illiterate, theologically weak faith says that God can't fill. Did you hear me this morning? All these little things promise to fill the holes that our biblically illiterate, theologically weak faith says God can't fill. Sure, you say you're gospel-centered in your living, but what does your life say? Where do you spend your time? What are you chasing? Paul quotes Exodus 32 for good reason. He says, the people sat down to eat and they rose up to play. Without going too deeply into this, Paul is talking about the ritual actions of worship of an idol. They sat down to eat and drink at a feast and rose up to celebrate, all for an idol that they had created with their own hands. Is your life this morning truly founded upon the person work of Jesus such that everything you do is worship to the one true God and anything that is not is seen clearly by you as sin? Or are you just pretending to be a Christian on Sunday while you worship yourself six and three quarters of the days of the rest of the week? Where do you stand this morning? Idolatry, when applied to the God of self, can really act as an umbrella term for, for most sin. And ultimately, sinning is saying, if you, look, this is, you gotta take this home. Sinning is saying, God is wrong and I'm right. That's what sin is. God is wrong, I'm right. Yet Paul calls out an area that's particularly a sore spot here, and so I'm going to continue to, to kind of probe into the wound already opened. He continues to go into a, a, a sore spot here for the Corinthians, and I think for the church in the United States. 1 Corinthians 10.8, We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Again, we see that sinning against God is no small matter. 23,000 people fell in a single day because the people of Israel were committing sexual immorality. And people today want to justify sexual immorality by arguing about the meanings of words and such, and so I want to be very clear in case anyone wants to split hairs with me. Sexual immorality is any sexual act outside of marriage which is between one man and one woman. You want to argue with me about that de definition? Feel free, but you're going to lose. Go do your word study. Go figure it out. Look, I, I'll, give you, I'll, give you, I'll give it to you. The Greek word here refers to illicit sex, fornication, sexual immorality, fornication, or prostitution. I'd say that pretty much covers all of it. If you're trying to find a way out of that definition... Go do, go do your word study, and then remember Matthew 5.28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's sexual immorality. If you're trying to come up with a very narrow definition of sexual immorality, Jesus just opens it up and says, it's the whole thing. If you're trying to justify in your mind that whatever it is you're doing with someone who isn't your spouse is fine, then 
this is a this is a sorry not sorry situation for me i want you to know the truth if you are in a sexually immoral relationship it is time to cut that sin out of your lives if you don't think the other person would stick around if you did then you're better off when they leave i know that's hard to hear there you are if you're in an, an adulterous relationship Today is the day to get out. Today. Not tomorrow. Not when it's convenient. Today is the day to get out. If you love that other person, and I've heard people say this, but I love that person. Yeah, if you love them, then love them enough to stop sinning with them. Because that's the only thing you can do. You've already gone too far. Don't keep shoveling. You're in the hole. Get out. Free that person from the bondage that comes from adultery. It is bondage. It's slavery. Let them go. Are you using pornography? Drag that sin kicking and screaming into the light and nail it to the cross to die. That's it. End of story. That's the only advice that I have for you is get rid of it. Do you think it's okay because your wife or husband knows? I've heard too many Christian couples say, well, we use pornography every once in a while and we think it's fine. Wrong. It's not. Sex is for one man and one woman. A third person on a screen or in your mind is still sin. Put it away. Look, I want to be clear. God is not trying to rob you of your joy by commanding you to commit yourself to one other person for life. But you have to trust him. You have to trust him. All sin is saying God is wrong and I'm right. Yes. And so let me assure you this morning, God is right. He is, absolutely, by virtue of the nature of what, like just the definition of God. You want to know what God is or who God is? The concept of God is the one who spun all of it into existence. He knows perfectly all of the truth and he did it all. And he is not a liar. He's giving you the absolute, unadulterated truth when he says marriage is between one man and one woman, and he tells us to flee from sexual immorality. He's telling you the truth, and it's for your good. You just have to trust him. And that's the hard part. I admit it. That's the hard part. The people of Israel failed to trust God in this area. In fact, sexual immorality opened the door to even more idolatry. In fact, as we read this account, uh, it's from Numbers 25. It reminded me uh, of, of how uh, quickly otherwise holy people tend toward rampant sin as soon as they let sexual immorality get a foothold in their life. Have you seen this happen? Somebody starts a, a little bit of an illicit relationship over here, and it just opens the floodgates to sin. It leads to lying, it leads to depression leads to hopelessness, feelings of worthlessness. How many times have you seen someone enter into an, a sexually illicit relationship with another person, and when that breaks up, because it will, when that breaks up, they go, well, it's fine to just go find another one. I don't have to feel guilty about it anymore because I'm worthless. Purity isn't a thing anymore. I've already given it away. How many people have done that? I know plenty of people like that. What a sad reality. That's not true. The people believe it. They believe the lie. That there's no hope there. It's not true. There is hope. 
We'll get to that in a moment. I just want to make it clear. Sexual immorality cannot give you the fulfillment that you're chasing. You can either turn, turn to God or you can try to fill the void with more sin, but sin will never make you whole. Speaking of things that we try to make, uh, make us whole, sometimes we grumble even though we have enough. This is the third category of sin that Paul mentions in our passage today, and I'll try to wrap it up here as quickly as I can. 1 Corinthians 10, 9 through 10 says this, but we mu- it must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Both of the instances here where they put Christ to the test and, and they grumbled, both of them, in my mind at least, describe a singular line of thought, simply that uh, despite the fact that God had given the, the Israelites more than they could have ever expected, they treated what God had given them with disdain and grumbled against his providence. We would never do that, right? (laughs) No, 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 no. Paul can't possibly be describing the near daily temptation to act like God hasn't given us quite enough. Can't possibly be. Sorry, I'm being more sarcastic today than maybe I should be. None of us, of course, would grumble about having to set up on a weekly basis when God has blessed us with such an amazing space and great people to work with in school. Of course we wouldn't. We'd never grumble about that. None of us would ever act as though the gifts that God had given us were a burden or, that, or act as though he hadn't actually given us anything at all, would we? No. No, we couldn't do that. Sorry. I'll let the sarcasm slide. I'll let it go. Look, I've, I've met church people who were amongst the most ornery, malcontented, grumbling people I have ever met in my entire life. Church people. Can you imagine? Sorry, the sarcasm is coming out again. This should not be so, my friends. This should not be so. If we are people created by God, saved by grace, and abiding in Christ who gives us eternal life, then we should be among the happiest, most joyful, and positive people in the world. Look, I know this is hard stuff. For some of you, it might be harder to hear this talk about not grumbling and, and not taking God's stuff with disdain. It might be harder for you to hear than when I was talking about sexual immorality. Some of you are very naturally grumpy people. I, I'm one of them, all right? I'm a naturally grumpy person. I have to, I have to work at joy, y'all. Somebody give me a hand. Yes, you, you work at joy. Amen. Yeah. Some of us have to work at joy. Maybe, and maybe some of you right now are thinking, oh, well, like, Greg, are you really telling me I need to be happier? Yes. Yes, but I'm not telling you you need to be fake happy. Not about being fake happy. I'm talking about real, deep-seated Christian joy. It's an appreciation of what God has given. I'm saying that you need to read the Scriptures, and rather than only weeping for sin, you need to weep for joy because you've been saved. (laughs) I'm saying you need to look around and see how much good God has placed in your life. I'm preaching to all of us right now, okay? In fact, it's, it's funny. I, I think about this. and when, when Ash and I are going through a particularly difficult season, she often prompts me with, what are three good things about today? 
And I'm like, man, I hate this question. I just really want to be alone with my feelings. <laughs> it's really annoying when all you want to be is down in the dumps and then somebody comes along and says, where's your joy? But answering that question, really answering it, even, even though I might be a little bitter in the moment, I'm confessing sin, okay? Even though I might be a little bitter in the moment, if I really answer that question, it is embarrassingly helpful for someone who tends toward negativity like myself. I need somebody to ask me, where's your joy? It reminds me that God's grace is still readily apparent even in the darkest moments. He's always good, and his steadfast love endures forever. If that doesn't give you joy, I don't know what will. Steadfast love for you endures forever. Christian, do not let discontentment, bitterness, and negative opinions gain a foothold in your life. Yes, look, acknowledge darkness and evil and sin. That's not good stuff. You don't have to be happy about it in that like temporal, momentary sense. You call those things what they are. Weep with those who weep, friends. Mourn with those who mourn. You don't need to be fake happy. Call evil evil and sadness sadness, but remember in every single circumstance that your joy is in the Lord and the joy of the Lord is your strength. Lean on your strength. In your darkest moments, lean on your strength, the joy of the Lord. One of the biggest temptations for God's people has always been toward grumbling and discontentment. See this throughout the Old Testament. Every time the people have it kind of good, they're grumbling. Put that stuff away. Put it away. My friends, if you have constructive criticism... State it in a spirit of brotherly love at the right time to the right person. At the right time to the right person. Otherwise, it's gossip, right? Let me, let me be clear about definitions of terms here. It's gossip if it's not at the right time to the right person. Constructive criticism is good. That's how we grow. But grumbling is a disease that spreads amongst people in back channels you're discontent with what God has given you and you're complaining to others and implying that they should agree with you, it's time to put that to death. Nothing tears down a church more quickly than the church itself. Very simple to tear down a church from the inside. You grumble a bit. It's contagious. Have you seen this happen? I've been around long enough to see it happen. And if somebody tries to grumble to you, shut it down. You have a responsibility. If you're on the receiving end of that, shut it down. Right? Stop the spread. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Shut it down. Nicely if possible. Abruptly if necessary. Far better for you to be rude than to continue the grumbling or put God to the test. Far better to be rude than to be nice while participating in sin. 1 Corinthians 10.11 reminds us that the consequences of all of these things, idolatry, sexual immorality, grumbling, and putting God to the test are clear from God's judgments against Israel in the Old Testament. It says first, in 1 Corinthians 10.11, it says, Now these things happened to them as an example, 
but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. If this sermon has in some way made you fear sinning against God, then the purpose of these judgments against the sins of Israel has been achieved. Fear is a good place to start. Well, the people at the, alive at the time who survived these judgments were able to learn from an example in their time. We too are able to learn from what, was, what had happened because it, uh, it has been written down for our instruction. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's Proverbs 9.10. You can go look it up. You are right to fear his judgment. If you make idolatry, sexual immorality, grumbling, and putting God to the test normal parts of your life, you, my friend, are in danger. Hebrews 10, 28-31 gives us a glimpse. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, like starting there, that's, that, there's a lot to unpack. Let's just say that when you, when you break a serious law in the law of Moses, death without mercy is the, is the punishment. Paul goes on, or, or the writer of Hebrews, depending on what persuasion you are there. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This passage is here for your warning, Christian. It's here for your good. It is here to make you fear God's wrath. That is a good and normal and right fear to have. We have to start there. But of course, if you are in Christ and you're abiding in him, then you need not fear judgment, the judgment of God. But if you make high-handed sin your way of life, you cannot rest assured in your salvation. Paul's whole point of this passage is that we must not find our assurance merely in the fact that we're part of the visible church. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, weekly worship, community groups, discipleships, groups uh, serving the church, none of it is worth anything at all unless there is a heart within you that beats with repentance and faith rather than evil and duplicity. No, we must find our assurance in Christ's finished work and feel that assurance as we live in obedience to him. Holiness and righteousness are the fruit of a converted heart. Insofar as these things are growing in us and we are abiding in Christ, we can be confident that we are truly in Christ and that we are truly saved. But the Corinthians had gone way off the deep end because they acted presumptuously with the freedom that God gives in Christ. They were confident that any behavior was justifiable because they were seen as part of the church. We participated in the ritual. We got baptized. We take the Lord's Supper. We could do what we want now. No, by no means. So Paul calls this assurance, their assurance of salvation, into question because the fruit of their lives was promiscuity and licentiousness rather than holiness and piety. This is not the fruit of true faith. 
Some of the Corinthians had drifted into error, and Paul's warning to them would correct them. And others had exposed their unbelief, and they would go on sinning regardless. We close with the last part of this passage. It says, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 12 through 13 says this, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will, prov- he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's so much to unpack in this, and I don't have time for it, but we'll, we'll get at this pretty quickly. The one who hears this warning and goes on sinning without repentance, that person has no ground for assurance of salvation whatsoever. Faith without works is dead, my friends. You might be fooling some people, but you will not fool God. It is better for you to admit that you don't actually believe and start from there than to keep up the facade. I mean this really. Let's be honest with one another. Let's start there. Tell me what you really believe, deep down. And look, I'm not saying that you're too far gone. I'm saying I just want you to be honest with where you stand. If you love your sin, say you love your sin. Let's work on that. Figure it out. I can tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ that will free you from the, all of the, the terrible punishments that are due for that sin. I can tell you how his freedom truly gives you freedom from all of that baggage, all of the bondage that comes from sin. We could talk about that stuff if only you would say it out loud and be honest with the people around you. You're not hopeless just because you don't believe. You have to admit your unbelief if you don't believe. We can start from there. Then we can have a conversation. Then you can get to know what the gospel means. For all of us, Jesus is our only hope. He's it. And we have fallen short in so many areas, and we continue to struggle with sin. All of our temptations are common to man, and we've fallen, we've all fallen into at least some of them. Are you a sinner? Can you raise your hand if you're a sinner? Yeah, me too, right? And that's not just, I used to be. I still sometimes sin. That's an admission of guilt. But Jesus is our only hope. So we go to him and we repent and we trust in him for his forgiveness. And so if, if you have idols in your life, break them. If you're committing sexual immorality, cut it out of your life. If you're grumbling, choose to speak joy. If you're treating God's blessings with disdain, then adopt thanksgiving. Yes, do all of those things. Lots of commands. But most of all, and before anything else, confess your sins to God, repent, trust in Christ, and receive forgiveness. I want you to know, before I I finish up here, that this is the only way you can win the battle. If you think cutting out all of this sin in your life is going to make you right with God, you've got it backward. Get right with God. That is, trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. God justifies through faith. And then, based on the confidence that you have in Christ's finished work, go get to killing sin in your life. 
and only then, only if you are founded upon the person and work of Jesus Christ, is there still hope for you when you fail. Only then is there strength when you have none. Because God is faithful. So faithful, in fact, that it says that he will provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. You have to trust. You have to look to, to God to provide that way of escape. He is faithful. For those without faith, there's no hope that God would provide the way of escape. But for those who do trust in him, God is faithful to provide you a means to endure tri- uh, the, the temptations and even, perhaps, triumph over it completely. Yes. I admit, this means that, that you cannot blame anyone but yourself when you fall into temptation. That's part of what this passage means. You can't blame anyone but yourself when you fall into temptation, but it also means that God has provided you everything you need to endure it the next time. So when you fail, repent. Believe in Jesus and go start killing sin again. Lean on God's word. Three things that I'll say. Lean on God's word, first and foremost. Read and pray that the Holy Spirit would apply the word to your heart. Ask him to help you understand. We prayed for that this morning, that he would help us, he would illuminate the scriptures to us, right? Pray for that. Pray that God would help you to see what the scriptures mean as you read. If you're like, man, I I don't have very good reading comprehension. I don't know what to do. Go get at it. Pray. Ask him to, to provide for you what you need to understand. Pray for God's faithful provision of endurance against temptation. You're going to notice that I say pray a lot. Admit your dependence upon God. Go before him and ask him as one of his children to provide you what you need, and he is faithful to do so. It's promised right here. Pray for God's faithful provision. And if you fall again, confess your sin and know that he is faithful to forgive. Stand back up. Get back to fighting again. And don't, the last thing, do not fight alone. No. Membership in the local church isn't the ground of your assurance, but the church is valuable in providing support against sin and temptation. It's one of the means by which God provides that way of escape that gives endurance against temptation. So when we confess our sins to one another, when we confess our temptations to one another, we hasten the process of killing sin in our lives. I, I, I've said this a couple of times, and, and maybe, maybe uh, the imagery isn't really uh, working for you, but I, I say drag sin kicking and screaming into the light. Confess it. Drink, bring it into the light. Don't, con- don't confess it in a way that justifies it. Don't go like, oh yeah, I did this thing, and then like, you know, whatever, I guess it's fine. No. Confess your sin as sin. Drag it kicking and screaming into the light and nail it to the cross. That's it. We spend far too much energy trying to look perfect and far too little energy fighting temptation and killing sin. So confessing your sins and temptations to others is a great way to start pushing in the right direction. And I'll tell you this, one of the greatest blessings you will ever experience in this life is confessing sin to another believer only to have them meet you with the good news that you are forgiven in Christ. 
So church, if you do nothing else based on this sermon today, I ask you to seek that blessing out. Confess your sins to one another. Fight sin together. Just keep on fighting. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.